Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Selling Gene, the podcast. I'm your host, Erin Harris, and I'm very excited to share this episode with you. My guest is Kathleen Lutz, VP of the Jackson Laboratories Rare Disease Translational Center. Uh, just in time for Rare Disease Day 2024. Rare Disease Day is an observance held on the last day of February to raise awareness for rare diseases and to improve access to treatment and medical representation for individuals with rare diseases and their families. So Kat, thanks for joining me. I'm so glad you're here today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Good, good. All right, so let's get started by briefly explaining to our listeners the Jackson Laboratory or JAX, J-A-X, um, and, and then more specifically, the Rare Disease Translational Center. And if you could tell us a little bit about RDTC's mission, that would be great too. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, the Jackson Laboratory is a really unique um, institution. It's a it's a nonprofit research institution. Uh, our main campus is in Bar Harbor, Maine, but we also have facilities um, in Connecticut and in California and Japan. Um, so we're really very global in, in our presence, but it started out really as a very humble uh, research institution, as I mentioned, off the, the coast of Bar Harbor, Maine. It really focuses on genetics and genomics, and the mission of the lab is to, you know, look at genomic solutions for rare diseases so that we could not only empower the global biomedical community um, in terms of improving human health, but very specifically understanding how genomics, genetics, um, and the and the interplay thereof uh, influence uh, human health. It's I think it's really unique because it's really been, you know, central to its mission from the start. It was founded in 1929, um, interestingly enough, and it was based on using mice as model organisms for genetics research. And even to this day, that really is the core and the central component of JAX. In terms of rare diseases, uh, you know, mice make a fantastic model organism for, for human genetics in, in general and for human health, but especially for rare diseases, because even from the start, we were we were looking at we were looking at rare diseases from mice who had spontaneous mutations in single genes, and we were able to isolate those single genes, identify what they were. And learn a lot about the, the the function of those genes and exactly what they were doing um, in terms of uh, the the role they played in terms of physiology as as well as in in terms of disease. And, and I think it's been really interesting as we move forward because so many of the genes in human and mice are conserved, and so this is a really important point. It, it makes it such that we can study the genes in mice and learn so much about not only the normal state of, of the genes, but the disease state and how that translates um, into human diseases and especially with rare diseases because so many rare diseases are genetic in, 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 their, in their origin, which means very simply that they're caused by a single gene mutation. And so this is really, you know, interesting from a from a standpoint of biology because we're now able to look um, at genes in mice. We're able to genetically engineer precise mutations in those mouse models. Um, those mutations that exist in patients that we've known about for a very very long time, genetic defects like muscular dystrophy, cystic fibrosis, for example, but then also de novo mutations that 
um, are, mu- are much more rare than than what you would find in in some of the common inherited rare diseases. These are often de novo mutations that occur in the germline um, of the parents or very early on in embryonic development. And so the mouse really makes for for a fantastic uh, model organism so that we can learn a lot more about what's happening um, in terms of the the pathophysiology, again, the, the, the disease state of the gene as well as the normal function of that gene. Good, good. Okay, thank you. Um, let's talk a little bit more about rare diseases specifically. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of our listeners certainly do have a, a great deal of you know professional experience, academic experience, both um, in the study of rare disease. What are the specific qualifications of a rare disease? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, I think for for rare diseases, there's a very specific definition in the United States with an incidence of less than 200,000 um, patients affected at, at any one given time. I think there's a definition there in terms of, you know, how we focus on regulatory components. But I think rare diseases, as they affect the global population of over 350 million people, um, are not so rare um, when when you think about it in in those terms. And certainly, if you are a parent of a child with a rare disease or have a rare disease yourself, I think the the numbers sort of fade into the distance. You know, don't they? They they become less about the numbers and less about the statistics, and more about you know the 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 challenge that's in front of of these families. And I think the the Rare Disease Translational Center at Jacks, we really you know, put a lot of effort behind that because we we completely appreciate how difficult it is um, to have a rare disease. It's a rare disease is not something that, you know, is not necessarily going to be um, the focus of a lot of pharmaceutical and biotechnology, you know, companies, because there's just, you know, simply not enough of a population uh, for 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 those instant for the, for those companies, right, to to invest in and, you know, for better, for worse, um, I think our drug discovery system um, is really set up, you know, in in that regard. Uh, No company, uh, there's not gonna be a company that's gonna get rich off of a weight loss drug or or an Ozempic, you know, type of, you know, component. But, But nonetheless, you know, even if there's only 100 or 200 people who have a rare disease. Collectively, it's it's a very large population of people. And I think when it's your family member or your child or you, um, I don't think the numbers really matter anymore, right? Um, I think that just because you have a rare disease doesn't mean that you don't have the right to treatment and you don't have the right to the research because we have so much to offer in terms of what we can do in terms of research. There's therapeutics um, that that are being developed. And if they can be developed for a common disease, you know, why can't we develop them for for rare disease? And I think the the RDTC, the Rare Disease Translational Center at Jacks, really is that's our mission to to not discriminate for for lack of a better word um, on the incidence of the population, but really try to use the science that we have, the therapeutic developments, the potential 
um, for a lot of these genetic therapies to help as many people as we possibly can. Good, good. Okay, great. Um, I wanted to clear a little bit about, uh, you know, how and when the study of a specific rare disease starts. And maybe that differs from disease to disease. Uh, you know, could you give us a little bit of insight around, around kind of the how and the when? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's an interesting historical perspective, you know, looking back at it, a lot of rare diseases were were named after the the physician or the clinician who identified or first described those um, that particular disease. And again, depending on how how common that rare disease is, for again, lack of a better word, um, you know, the incidence in the population would would make it such that it was more common and could be diagnosed relatively easily. Before we had genome sequencing, exome sequencing, whole genome sequencing. A lot of rare diseases were were not even described. You know, they may have been categorized as looking similar to or resembling a particular disease. Um, you know, maybe it was uh, lack of um, reaching particular milestones, uh, learning disabilities, cognitions, uh, cognition uh, problems, problems with. Um, with with speech, maybe they they were weaker, hypotonia, not growing as quickly, and so the categorization of neurodegenerative, neurodevelopmental, um, all of those types of big blanket terms really started to pop up. But as sequencing became more and more prominent, and I still think I'll put a plug in here that I don't think it's prominent enough. I think. We need to be sequencing patients earlier so that we can understand exactly what their genetic mutation is. And that's what we do with whole genome sequencing or exome sequencing. Instead of trying to, to really identify the, the disease based on what it looks like, we identify the disease based on the genetic mutation itself. So if we can, if we can do that sequencing early enough, we can understand them. Um, most of the time, I'm going to say a, a large majority of the time, we can identify not only the defective gene, but right down to the base pair, um, you know, exactly what's wrong uh, with, with that child. And that's incredibly powerful because now you have these subcategories of diseases, some that are, you know, genes in the similar pathway, you know, genes that, you know, sort of converge, you know, in different areas. But I think the precision involved in identifying that patient mutation is incredibly powerful. And that's where a lot of the, the genetic therapies are, are really geared towards. And it's important because I think it's it's not a case anymore that you simply say that, you know, your child, you know, has a developmental or a neurodegenerative condition. You're not really sure what it is, um, but there's some, you know, maybe occupational therapy or physical therapy. And in many instances, um, you know, as as many of us know, most children who are diagnosed with a rare disease don't live past their fifth birthday. Um, and that's really devastating, you know, for parents, for families to to have that level of a diagnosis. The idea of being that helpless and not even understanding what's wrong with your child. You know, those days are really in the rearview mirror for us. And I think we have a lot to offer families with rare diseases, if we can just get to that genetic mutation, if we can get to the molecular diagnosis sooner, 
rather than later. We, we really don't want kids to be so far into their disease before we figure out, you know, what the, what the issues are. The sooner we can diagnose um, a rare disease, I think the better shot, better chances and, and more shots on goal that we have for treating it. Sure, sure. That makes a lot of sense. Um, tell us a little bit about how RDTC is using gene therapy as a potential cure for rare diseases. Yeah, I think this is really exciting. You know, when we talk about rare diseases and I think about, you know, over the years, you know, even as I've been studying genetics, genomics and and looking, you know, there it's one thing to be able to identify a gene that's causative for a disease. Um, you know, it's another thing to genetically engineer that particular mutation in a mouse model so that we can you know, really study and understand. I mean, the science is incredible. What, you know, what you can do with genetic engineering, the things we learn, the biology, um, the technology of, of omics and, and, you know, it just seems like this mountain of data and information that is almost a, a mountain that's, that's hard to climb because there is, you know, so much of it. But I think that the technology of, of genetic therapies is I think is the most promising and the most exciting is it you can't use the the gene therapies in isolation you do have to understand a little bit about that data um, what that gene is doing where it's expressed um, how it's functioning is there too little too much um, you know what's actually the nature of of the mutation itself but the gene therapies I think are the most exciting because you know before, we had these gene-based therapies. We were trying to treat, I'm going to say symptoms almost, right? We were trying to get maybe small molecules or drugs that might act upstream or downstream of the genetic mutation, you know, things that could alleviate the symptoms. But when you think about genetic therapies, you know, they really are attacking it right at the core. The gene is defective, fix the gene that's defective. It sounds that simple and it sounds so simple and it's, and it is that simple, but it's not as simple as it sounds. We still have a lot of work to do. I think the potential for gene therapies is still really, you know, fantastically exciting. I think we do need to catch up. It's lagging behind a little bit, the application of these amazing therapeutics, you know, that we have and the potential for them um, needs to, to really, you know, sort of move a little bit faster because we have all of this research on one end, you know, and all of these potential therapeutics, gene-based especially, that are so incredibly exciting. Um, but on the other side, we have too few, in my opinion, uh, therapeutics that have been um, FDA-approved to treat rare diseases, and we really need to close that gap. Yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, now, certainly we've spent this time talking about rare diseases, and um, you know, how far we've come, how far we still have to go. How can the study of rare diseases potentially advance progress in, in more common diseases? Yeah, I, I think we, we get that question a lot. Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I always think about it in terms of the genetic mutations that we know in the common um, arena, if you will. We, we know risk to Alzheimer's. We know BRCA1 genetic mutations um, for, for breast cancer. 
um, we we know that there are genetic mutations that have susceptibility to high cholesterol, to blood pressure. Um, some of these are single gene, but most of them are not. They're little. They're more than one gene, and they're complex. But we do know that there are susceptibility genes, and so think about if we could fix a gene for a rare mutation. And when I say fix, um, you know, loss of function, you can do gene augmentation, gene replacement. Um, editing is a is a fantastic strategy. And when you think of it, it's it's really sort of it, it blows your mind a little bit to think of, you know, three billion base pairs in the human genome and an editing strategy that can just hone in on that one particular mutation, correct that mutation. And then for all cells that, you know, then therefore divide um, after are are completely rectified. So, so that's like an amazing, it, it almost sounds like science fiction, um, but believe me, it's not. We've, we've been working with base editing in mouse models. We've shown the accuracy. We've shown the specificity. We've shown, um, you know, the therapeutic potential is, is really great. Delivery is something that we have to work on because especially for neurological diseases, um, hitting the central nervous system is not as easy, but I think that those technological advances will also come. But in terms of common diseases, the therapeutics themselves, I think are going to first be validated um, in, in very severe rare diseases. We, we know um, for a lot of these diseases that these kids don't have much time, the, the clock is ticking. And that creates a sense of urgency. It creates this, um, I think it lowers the bar a little bit um, for, for the FDA. I think we definitely need to be safe. Nobody wants to be cavalier about throwing therapeutics out there um, that haven't been tested for safety and and haven't you know been shown to, to necessarily have a, the potential to work. So we do have to demonstrate that there is safety we have to demonstrate efficacy. But in many of these cases, we already know if we do nothing that that child will die. Um, and so the the bar, if you will, is is a little bit lower to, to move in with these therapeutics because we have to give these kids a fighting chance. We, we just do. Um, when death is absolutely an option at the end of, of their disease, intervening is, is something that we can do. So this is where I think the therapeutics will be validated in rare diseases um, because of that sense of urgency. We will very quickly, I think, understand the potential for, for a lot of these therapeutics. And then that will have, you know, ramifications for, for more common diseases down the line. And I use Alzheimer's and breast cancer because we know that there are susceptibility loci there that are very common in the population. And we know what they are. We know the genes and we know the mutations that that render um, somebody, you know, susceptible to Alzheimer's. And then I think, you know, as we have rare diseases, so not just the genetic therapies, but those things that can work. I think epilepsy is, is a great example. Things like congestive heart failure are another. Um, if you can find small molecules that intervene and work their ways within those pathways to prevent something in a rare disease, you may also be able to use it for, for like an intractable epilepsy, for example. So I think there's discoveries to be made on both ends, genetic therapies and small molecules that that interplay in those pathways. And, and I think um, 
that a lot of what we learn about common diseases and therapeutics for common diseases will absolutely come from all the work we're doing in rare diseases today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely sure sounded for sure. Um, all right, I wanna talk a little bit about collaboration with RDTC. And from what I understand, the RDTC engages with institutes, foundations, and biotech and therapeutic development groups uh, for pre, pre, excuse me, preclinical research uh, up and running based on specific patient genetics. And so talk to our audience a little bit about the benefit of collaboration and how can perhaps even listeners, you know, or a qualifying organization get involved with RDTC? Yeah, that's a great question because I think a lot of times we do see, um, especially families who are recently diagnosed, um, you know, finally tackling that hill uh, in terms of, you know, now I understand what the genetic mutation is in my child and now, and now she, you're on top of that hill and now you're facing another mountain of what do I do about it, right? Um, and because the, the sequencing has been so, you know, so so fast and so quick um, in, in its development, I think the number of rare diseases, the number of causative mutations is, you know, really piling up and 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 in some ways, it's really exciting because it's a wealth of information. And then in other times, you know, we, we do have to have the research to catch up, you know, to all of these, um, to all of these discoveries. So, you know, NIH has been uh, done a fantastic job, you know, in my opinion, we've been fortunate. Um, the Rare Disease Translational Center, we have um, a very large grant from, from NIH um, that funds the Jack Center for Precision Genetics. And so, this is a grant where we're able to um, take a diagnosis from a patient who comes to us and says, my child has just been diagnosed with a mutation in this gene. And those dollars allow us to genetically engineer those mouse models, um, understand really what's happening at the level of the pathology. Because a lot of times these rare diseases have such few patients, it's often hard to even get the natural history together. If it's a very heterogeneous disease, you know, where what are we really looking at? If some kids have epilepsies, some don't. Some kids are verbal, some are not. Um, so even a single monogenetic disease can be very complex, you know, in some ways. And so having the the dollars um, and having the, the the ability to work with foundations and patients to to genetically engineer those models because that's a that's a big deal, right? Having a model organism for a particular genetic disease gets you so far. It, it allows you to understand the pathophysiology, the biology, but most importantly, it allows you to have a therapeutic testing platform for, for, for things that, um, you know, like gene editing, gene therapy, viral base vectors, lipid nanoparticles, um, all of those things that are so exciting and in development, you know, are now sort of this little patient avatar in the form of a mouse you know, that can help you understand. And I think, you know, we're, we're no different, I think, than the way science is being done all over, but I think we're exceptionally good at knowing that we are not going to solve these diseases by ourselves. You know, there's no lab who really does. So, you know, one of the things that we do is collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. You know, we're not gonna be experts in every single disease, although we're pretty good um, at, at most things. And I think the the one thing that 
we do, I think, exceptionally well is when we have these mouse models, we make them available almost immediately to anybody who wants to use them because we may have a very good idea of what we think, you know, we could do the next experiment, the next therapeutic, but I guarantee you, you know, there's a hundred other people out there, you know, who are thinking just along the same ways and have different expertise or have different thoughts or different ideas. And if we can all work together and have those resources available, you know, then these things, these therapeutics for rare diseases are going to move that much faster. So it's been, you know, really exciting to see it come together over the years. Um, it used to be you know, one gene, one disease, one laboratory, you know, back in the 80s and the early 90s. Um, and certainly if you look at how science is done today, it's done by groups, consortiums, and everybody putting, you know, their their best foot forward um, and the thing that they're the expert in into the pot. And then you mix it all together and you come up with, you know, success much faster than you would if you were to try to do this by yourself. A hundred percent. I think that outlook of collaboration is incredibly important for, I mean, not only what you're doing, but over, you know, cell and gene therapy, which what we cover as a whole, but certainly for um, what the RDTC is doing. And, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. All right, listeners, that wraps up this episode of Cell and Gene, the podcast featuring the RDTC's Kat Lutz. Kat, thank you so much for your time and for all of the great information you shared with us today. This was fantastic. And We'll hope to have you on uh, sometime soon to bring us up to speed on what you're doing, even, you know, in addition to what is being announced and, and talked about on Rare Disease Day. And and please, you know, for the listeners out there, um, go to our go to our website, um, look at the Rare, Di- Rare Disease Translational Center at Jack's, um, see how we can help. We, we, we specialize, I think, in newly diagnosed uh, families and individuals trying to help them get started. Um, trying to help leverage the the resources at NIH, the resources at the Jackson Laboratory, and and all of the people that we know who are working in rare diseases, you know, to really get things started much more quickly um, than maybe in in years past. So I think it's um it's a great resource for for families, foundations, and and not only for newly diagnosed, but for for those diseases that have more potential therapeutics out there that haven't been tried for the more common rare diseases and the common diseases themselves. I think the genomics and genetics component of, of JAX is incredibly special and, and really primed, you know, for this kind of research. So we're really excited um, for, we're excited to be in rare diseases at, at a time where the therapeutics are, are just so incredibly interesting and, and tangible. And right. so helping these patients and these families, I think is really your mission. Excellent. Thank you. Well, you heard her. Please go visit those sites and to see, to learn more and to see how you can get involved and learn all that you can learn. And thanks for tuning in and we will talk to you soon.